This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. While 2018 might mean many things to many people, for some, it's the debate between Laurel and Yanni. For others, it's an analysis of who wore the best gown to the Met Ball in New York this year. And for others, it's whether the Kim Jong-un meeting will actually ever happen. But for a lot of political observers, 2018 also marks the potential for a momentous shift in power in how our national government and our national leadership marks the course and trajectory of this nation, midterm elections. Today, in a special episode of American Enough, we cover the state of the California primaries. Polls open this morning at 7 a.m., on Tuesday, June 5th, to mark one of the first and largest statewide ballot elections rife with gubernatorial candidates, mayoral candidates for large metropolitan cities, and countless measures focused on housing, homelessness, transportation, and beyond. But in many respects, the California primary and today's election marks a lot more. In fact, one of the Democratic Party's own candidates for governor, the current Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom recently told California Democrats at this year's Democratic Convention in San Diego that we're all Californians. Wear it with pride. This is our moment. And let's show the world that Donald Trump is the last vestige of a darker, obsolete past and offer a bold new vision for a progressive and prosperous future. For a lot of Californians running for office, this state isn't just their home turf. It's the home of the resistance. Whether it's rebuking gun policies, immigration raids measured by ICE, or even having a conversation about the state of climate and how best to prepare our planet for the future, people in California, the candidates in California, and the issues on bear in today's election actually showcase a broader commentary on how to reclaim the American identity, particularly for those that find that identity to be toiling in the wind under the current leadership of the current administration. So just how does the California Democratic Party see its face in the broader trajectory of this nation? And how does the chairman of that own party actually see the future of the country based off of what happens today? On American Enough, we're joined by a special guest, the chairman of the California Democratic Party on the morning of the June 5th primaries, one of the first on the road to the 2018 midterm elections, Eric Bauman. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. While the country has been seeing a, a, a tidal wave of politics of division, in many respects, there's been a silver lining over the arc of the last two years. More people at a record clip are running for office. And a lot of that Standing up for public service has taken root in the state of California. Core to California's identity has always been a thought that since the economy is so large, the sectors are so inventive, and the politics and values embodied within the state are so uniquely Californian that in many respects, California can always go it alone, do its own thing, be its own leader. But at this moment in history, when much of the world and the country takes a look at how to overcome politics of division and reclaim the mantle of American identity, California is also seen as a good steward of what the future of the country and the nation can possibly be about. Today, on Election Day, California's primaries kick off at the polls opening at 7 a.m. and mark the first official march or inflection point to the road to the 2018 midterms. And joining us today is a special guest for our Election Day coverage, Chairman of the California Democratic Party, Eric Bauman. Eric, thanks for joining American Enough. Thank you. Good morning, and, and I appreciate you for having me. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you about this, this thesis about California being the face of the resistance, of, of being a refuge of justice and opportunity. Um, from what you see in terms of the candidates that are on the ballot today, the measures, the propositions up and down the ticket, how, how do you view this election? Is it distinct from other elections or do you think it's an important moment in history when it comes to you know, pushing back on the broader politics we're seeing from our federal government? One of, the, one of the interesting things about this year's election 
is that what has caused the excitement and energization of the progressive electorate and the liberal electorate um, also may be the thing that hurts us in today's election. And what I mean by that is the following. We have many, many opportunities to take back congressional seats, to win previously unreachable legislative seats, uh, to maintain our dominance amongst the statewide uh, offices. But we have a plethora of candidates who all got into run because they were so frustrated with the turn that they've seen America take. With, with the results of how 86,000 votes in three states changed the face of our nation. And as a result of that, um, lots of folks came out to run for office, many, many more so than we normally would see. Many women, many, many candidates capable of self-funding, um, a quite diverse cast of, uh, of hundreds, but that because of our unique primary system, that puts us and our ability to win some of these seats at risk. California is really a place of its own. And when you see former Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger just this past week tweet at President Trump, your goal for the gross domestic product was 3% growth. Your reality was 2.3%. Here in California, we had 4.9% GDP. Perhaps instead of trying to lecture us and tell us what to do, you should shut up and learn from us. And that is a metaphor for how California is in and of itself truly a nation state. The most diverse place probably on the face of the earth where more than 160 languages are spoken, and where we're not afraid to um, be left, left of center, and left of left, and enact policies that reflect that. And I think today, hopefully, we'll see the continued excitement of our voters turn out in large numbers, because that's what we're going to need to overcome um, the overpopulation we have in many of these races. I want to I want to uh you know talk to something that you alluded that structurally is about the way the race is, is um built in terms of the jungle primary in a second but before we get to that I kind of want to double click on what you just mentioned there in terms of the the world the nation learning from California and Californians uh, in, in some respects California gets painted maybe in a sort of flippant manner, but as, you know, a bunch of latte sipping liberals or that the technology that's built here is really causing inequality in other parts of the world or that we, you know, when we have a sanctuary city that safeguards the the protection of, of basic decency of immigrants, that we're in some way, shape or form shortchanging jobs around the rest of the nation. And I want to ask you specifically because, uh, Mr. Chairman, you have done an incredible thing as at the helm of the party, and that is often when you talk about the state of the Democratic Party but also the state of California, you've invoked your own faith as a sense of what drives politics of inclusion and being my brother's keeper. Um, oftentimes, California, when you think about those stereotypical buckets of that latte-sipping liberal, we're often even seen as people that maybe reject religion in pursuit of science or are against conservative values in um, support of liberal ones. These binaries are not only a time and honor tradition in, in America's deliberation of who we are as a people, but the binaries have had this inflamed tension uh, over you know the last couple of years and particularly on the heels of the election of President Trump. So how do you see both uh, you know the state being a leader, innovating, creating growth, creating opportunity, and standing for its values while still needing to be someone that makes a bridge across a community and adheres to faith, adheres to family values, adheres to those principles that maybe someone in in the 63 million votes uh, that were put forth for Trump maybe disagree with Californians. Is there a room or a role for California to play a role as a bridge builder or ought it to be its own identity unto itself? One of the unique things about California just generally 
is that we truly are a microcosm of the nation. There are parts of our state that look like the Midwest. There are parts of our state that look like the South. There are parts of our state that um, are clearly the coastal liberals. All of the above, some 44 million people live together from all different perspectives. And we all manage, for the most part, to find ways to get along. It is true that especially amongst... Um, especially amongst progressives and liberals, there is a tendency towards, as you call it, the scientific outlook. But science and religion are not incompatible. And I, I, I would say this, as, as an observant Jewish man, um, you know, Jews often define their world mission as healing the world, commonly known as tikkun olam. And tikkun olam is built on a three-legged stool, it's built on tzedek, which means justice. It's built on mishpat, which means jurisprudence. And it's built on chesed, which means the doing of good deeds. When you look at that three-legged stool, you see the mission of what every progressive and every liberal believes we need to do to lead our country forward. I have no difficulty... Um, sitting and having non-religious conversations with people who don't believe in God, and I do perfectly well have those conversations sometimes where we argue about it, but that's okay. Each of us finds our own moral framing. I'll tell you, I've had my moral values questioned many, many times, but my husband of 35 years and I um, probably are exemplars of what a loving family can be, and I've often, I've often looked back at at the years of my life, at the number of 18 and 19 and 20-year-old interns or former interns of mine who come to ask me where to take their girlfriend to propose or where to, you know, <laughs> you know, should I ask my girlfriend's father permission to marry her? And you know why they do it? Because they look at what Michael and I have, and they say, they don't have this at home. They don't see this. So we... Notwithstanding Leviticus, we represent that traditional family that so many people crave. We don't have kids, but we have dogs. And um, the good thing about that is I don't have to send the dogs to college. <laughs> right, there's no, and, there's and, by, no and by the way, let me just say, I have dozens and dozens of children because the, the folks who've interned for me across the years tend to stay in my life forever. So... The Bauman family. I like that's, that's it. That's exactly um, right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and and I guess core to your point is this notion that we you know, we don't have to we, we can reject this sort of false trade off, right? That we can only value um one set of communities if it's at the expense of others. That sort of divisive rhetoric has really cast quite a cloud um uh, under this administration. Certainly that we can only ca you know, we, we can only support immigrant communities at the expense of other Americans having jobs, or we can only support um, uh, transgender uh, service members serving in the military at the expense of, of being a less than ideal uh, military state, which or m military efficacy, um, which is, you know, a totally false premise to begin with. But this, this concept of mutual exclusivity continues to rear its head in our nation's politics. And perhaps to your point, California rejects that and chooses both, chooses everyone. Um, part of choosing everyone is also making sure that when candidates turn out to the polls, um, that the folks that are able to choose are able to choose in a, in a clear-eyed fashion, perhaps less in terms of having ideologues turn out to the polls and more in terms of having practical representatives that reflect the will of the, the republic or for the state. And, and part of what structurally was done in the state to try and drive at that kind of politics of reason um, in terms of which candidates you know advance from the primary to the general election was the creation of this jungle primary system that you alluded to um, you know, you, you spoke about it as being both an interesting element of California, but also perhaps to its detriment. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about those voters that are going to the poll this morning or later today, um, what they experience when facing a jungle primary, how that works, and, and whether you see any sort of trappings or downsides to that system that you would like to see the party engage in or, or address in, in future 
uh, moments. Well, let me let me start with just a little bit of background. In 2010, um, Governor Schwarzenegger and a Republican billionaire, at the behest of a um, somewhat more moderate Republican state senator whose vote was needed to pass the budget, put on the ballot a measure to create this top two primary. And part of the theory behind it, part of the reason this lieutenant governor wanted it was because he just couldn't win in a Republican primary other than in his district because he wasn't conservative enough. The way this thing was sold to the public was that if it passed, we would, number one, provide um, for, we would we would cause turnout among non-affiliated voters, non-party affiliated voters, to increase dramatically, which, by the way, it has not. And number two, that it would moderate the candidates that end up in the uh, general election, the runoff election, if you will, in November, and therefore it would moderate our legislature. Um, now, you will see some pundits who were involved in its ori- original uh, campaign claim that it in fact has created moderation in our legislature. Well, first off, I don't know who wanted that. Um, second of all, it's not true. The only reason that there's an expansion of the number of moderate elected officials that there are in California is because at a certain point with our ever-changing demographics in California, districts that used to be Republican became more likely to be Democratic, and but the kind of Democrats that could win in those districts were more moderate. So we gained seats, and greatly that's where those moderates, so-called, were elected. Now, I've got to tell you, the thing about California that's so great is that we don't have to be moderate, that we can actually try to pursue things like single-payer health care, that we can actually pursue things like our own earned income tax credits. Um, and and legislation to try to uh, control the cost of pharmaceuticals and all all things of that nature. But but that said, it's a very confusing system because, for example, in our governor's race, where by the way there are 27 candidates, um, it may be two Democrats that end up on top. It may be a Democrat and a Republican who's absolutely incapable of winning. And so what you see playing out in how the candidates campaign is you see one leading Democrat running ads that are essentially designed to promote the leading Republican by attacking him and saying he's for Donald Trump, he's, he's for you know, all of these conservative things. And the other leading candidate for governor is running similar advertisements for the other major Republican candidate. Because if, because if you think about it, if you're the leading Democrat, you'd much rather have the race be over in June, right? Because if a, if a, Republican, if a Republican makes the top two, that means we've won the governor's race and it's over. Right. I mean, we'll, we'll have an election in November, but it'll be pro forma. Pro forma, absolutely. Um, um, if... The, if the number two Democrat wants to be in the race, it means we have a campaign that goes on through November, and we have an ongoing clash of ideas um, that actually would reflect um, a more liberal Democrat versus a more moderate Democrat, uh, which, which is an interesting configuration for these two because it's kind of a flip-flop of who they were in their younger days. Um, I don't think this system has benefited the state of California. I believe this system was created to bleed the Democratic Party uh, to death. And, and, I, and the Sacramento Bee newspaper, back in 2010 before it passed on the ballot, um, uh, said they went back and analyzed the prior primary election under these rules. And at that time, they said that if the election had been held under these rules, top two primary rules, that there would have been 23 or 24 Democrat on Democrat races and three or four Republican on Republican races. 
Guess what there were in November of 2016? 24 Democrat on Democrat races and three Republican on Republican races. Perfectly predictable. So what does so what does that mean? What does that mean for the voters of California? Here's what it means. First of all, it means millions of dollars get pissed away in intra-party warfare. Second, it means that if you're a member of the Green Party or the Libertarian Party, you are never going to see a candidate of your choice on the ballot because they can't get on there, and there's no write-ins in the general election. It means if you're a Republican in one of those 23 or 24 districts that go dem on dem, there will not be a candidate that shares your values for you to vote for, even if they were to lose. And if you're a Democrat in one of those three races, where it's Republican or Republican, there will not be a candidate for you. I believe it's outright disenfranchisement of voters um, because your choices are limited, ultimately. Now, yeah, and, and, I, and I'll just say, I, part of my campaign for chair of the California Democratic Party, one of, one of the uh, five pl- planks in my platform, if you will, was beginning to work on repealing or repairing this measure. And I'll, I'll tell you, I am perfectly accepting of having non-affiliated voters vote in the Democratic primary. Okay. Um, and and I th- we, you know, we Democrats allow that in our presidential primary still because that's not part of the top two system. Because I think right. one of the – first of all, most non-affiliated voters vote like Democrats in California, 60 percent of them. And, and I think the way you ultimately win them over and bring them to our side, whether they register as Democrats or not, is by making it accessible to them. Um, so I'm willing to have that. I don't particularly want Republicans voting for who's going to be the Democratic office holder, number one. And number two, I don't like the fact that you know a friend of mine who is a Green Party member with whom I disagree vociferously about many things um, never gets a candidate that he can vote for. Right. I don't Doesn't think that's right. I just don't think it's yeah. right. Yeah, and, and that's that's got to be an incredible so, – so in addition to the, the structural challenges and, and perhaps the word challenge is an understatement there that this presents to, to California and just sort of our, our voting enterprise as, a, as citizens here – um, it also probably puts a particular strain or challenge on you as as the the chair of the party because when when uh, all is said and done and you know the votes are tallied at the end of tonight when you wake up tomorrow morning uh, and you have to you know usher the party on a path towards the road to November um, in some respects some may say that it's part of your mandate or remit to to kind of heal um, or put back to the pieces put together sorry the pieces that may have resulted in fallout from any of the that party infighting what what does it look like to lead the face of the the California Democratic Party on June 6th tomorrow after the election primary or election day sorry versus leading up to it in June 5th are those distinct approaches um, or do you think that those are sort of consistent with one another in terms of role and scope so, so I Actually, there there become a couple of phases to this, if you will, especially in an election like this year's, because early on in the season, we had to try to see what we could do to thin out some of the fields because we had so many candidates running. We were we were just in danger in in, in opportunities where we had to pick up seats. We were in danger of being locked out of seats, by the way, we still are in, in a number of races. So, so a great deal of time was unfortunately spent on um, trying to talk folks out of one race and perhaps into another or uh, you know, for, <laughs> whatever it might be. I chose not to take a heavy-handed approach with that, um, though I had many, many conversations and we successfully got – about seven candidates out of races, but that still leaves us with several races where we actually have eight candidates running. That makes it difficult because when you split up the number of, you know, Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters versus the number of Republican and Republican-leaning voters, if there's only two Republicans and there's eight Democrats, guess what? It's a pretty tough race. So, so, so then the next phase becomes 
how do we keep these people who are, who are clawing at each other to try to get enough market share to make the top two from killing each other so that even if one of them wins, they don't limp out of the primary so damaged that they're going to lose in November. And, and, and essentially, their opponents have, have had it handed to them. So um, uh, that has been the most interesting um, experience of this. In one of the most contentious races that we have, in this big flock of candidates who are running, one of the things that's been very unusual on the Democratic side is there are lots and lots of self-funding candidates. That basically translates to millionaires. And and in some cases, mega millionaires. Um, and in one particular race, I had two people, both of whom um, are worth um, hundreds of millions of dollars, attacking each other viciously. And I literally called them to a meeting in a restaurant um, and sat them down to negotiate an armistice. And um, fortunately, we were successful, and um, both sides, after agreeing to perform a series of, if you will, confidence-building measures, um, both sides took down all their negatives, negative websites, negative digital advertising, negative mail, negative television. Um, and we all agreed that moving forward, they would promote themselves and they would attack the conservatives that they're running against. Um, who, whose values are clearly and distinctly different than um, than ours. So, you know, after tomorrow, uh, after tomorrow, well, it's not going to even be after tomorrow because that's not right. Wednesday morning is not the when we're going to know what's going on. First of all, we have a rule now in California that vote by mail ballots that are postmarked uh, on election day may be received up until Friday and still be counted as, as valid because we have a lot of delays in, in with postal service in California because we're so big. And so a lot, of, a lot of voices will trickle in over the right. arc of the next several days. So, so if you not even thinking about provisional ballots and all the kind of confusion, we won't know all those outstanding vote mail votes, how many there there you know will actually come in and be to be counted until probably next Monday. And it's even more complicated if you're running in a race such as the one that I was referring to um, a few minutes ago, um, which happens to reside in three counties because in California the county registrars count the ballots in their respective counties. So um, it, it's going to be quite an experience. This is my first time as state chair. I was vice chair for eight years, and I was the chair of Los Angeles County for 17 years. So it's not like I'm unfamiliar with this process, but um, this time I'm kind of like my, I'm kind of the, like the last stop on these things. And we're going to have to figure out, you know, do we end up having to go into court on any of these cases? Are there any recounts? We'll, you know, we'll, there are many options we'll have to see after. Um, you know, we know what's going on. Now, it is very possible that tomorrow morning when, you know, 80% of the ballots or 70% of the ballots have been counted, um, there'll be a result that is so clear that, you know, it's not going to change. You know, it may be that the leading candidate for governor ends up with an unassailable margin so that we know for sure that he will be in the first spot, let's just say, using that as an example. Um, but in other races, especially races where there, you know, there's a polyglot of candidates who are quality candidates and who have resources, we may not know for, for days and days and possibly weeks. 
That's fair. And I mean, you know, in in many respects, this whole process, whether it's sort of the flood of cash you reference with multimillionaires running uh, enabled through Citizens United, um, or it's sort of broader structural reforms that may be required for, for our elections, you know, democracy can be and looks oftentimes and is oftentimes quite messy. Um, but the upside is that, you know, going into today, the notion of, of you know, millions of Californians going to the polls is also a, a special concept, not just because they can, you know, express their will um, and try and change the arc of history for the state and the country, um, but also in a in a kind of an interesting moment in history for the party, California's bench of, of local political talent has also sort of captured national attention um, for the prospects of higher office. I mean, just to name a few, whether we like whether we all agree with them or not on their day to day policies, everybody from Adam Schiff, who's famously engaged on you know the Russia probe at the federal level and uh, with against the Trump administration, to Senator Kamala Harris, to our Attorney General Javier Becerra, um, to the prospect of L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti, maybe even running for president, to sort of Gavin Newsom's long term sights. I'm curious when when a lot of the nation. I didn't looks hear you. I didn't the, hear you say Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer, yeah, you're well. Tom you know, Steyer certainly run. I mean, he's not. He's not. He's not expressed an outright interest. In fact, he's generally demurred when asked. But um, you know, he certainly he's got his built, out, built a machine uh, across the country. Certainly has, certainly has, and has been uh, quite a, a voice and uh, a juggernaut on on funding for uh, even climate issues, even well before you know Trump was was a blemish on the country. But you know, with all of this sort of prognostication, the fact is that much of the the bench of the National Democratic Party uh, seems to stem from California. And I'm just kind of curious, from your perspective, how does the CDP sort of approach? investing in that next generation of talent. Um, and I'll use sort of, you know, at the convention this year in San Diego, it was almost sort of um, a bit of shock and awe to see uh, how Senator Feinstein, who's considered, you know, a, a lion in her own right, a the consummate public service, but, you know, has definitely put in time and there are others that are sort of itching to, to also lean in and, and have their voice. Not that anyone has the rightful heir to a seat, but it was a moment in time in which sort of her tenure was confronted with, with others, uh, you know, trying to lean into that race with others not necessarily trying to endorse her for the Democratic Party nomination. So without making this a matter of Democratic Party infighting, it seems that we both have this unique moment where there are a lot of talented names out there um, who may be on the broader rise over time. And there's this sort of changing of the guard challenge that's happening in which younger generation of leaders or voices are seeking the baton from more tenured generations. Um, how does the CDP approach that? How do you kind of reconcile both the respect for long-serving candidates while also investing in cultivating a new bench of, of new new era candidates? Well, one, one of the first things, and I just sort of want to lay this point out at the beginning, ageism is absolutely unacceptable in this entire discussion. And what happens is, without realizing it, people are often, with respect to Senator Feinstein, with respect to Governor Brown, with respect to other long-serving politicians, they're often very ageist. Um, and, 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 and not intentionally so. Just, yeah, no, that's just fair. That's fair. Um, when you have a place that looks like California, it is truly possible to have many seats at the table so that um, inclusion truly does occur. And this is, this is an important notion. And, and I'll give you just two perfect examples. When in 1994... Um, Sheila Kuehl was elected as the first openly gay member of the state legislature. Until that time, when bills were discussed and debated on the floor that related to gay people, oftentimes conservative legislators, not always Republicans, but especially Republicans, would say the most obnoxious and demeaning things about gay people. And yes, there were some allies who would stand up and fight back, but it's not like having somebody 
who is the thing that's being attacked, standing up and saying, you are talking to me. Same with the first time that I remember an Armenian person being elected. Suddenly, California was, was leading the charge in recognition of the genocide, in creating, uh, when I worked for Governor Davis, he signed into law a bill requiring that there be a curriculum teaching about both the Holocaust and the genocide, because neither of them were in the standard curriculum. Hmm. And something that Congress has still not been able to acknowledge Correct. as a total well, body. That, that, is a whole, that is a whole other thing, because we think that Turkey's doing us some great favors, you know, because they let us fly our jets, land our jets there or fly over their space or whatever it is. Um, anybody who thinks Erdogan is uh, a Democrat is out of their minds. Um, that was a small d Democrat. Um, so we're facing, the, you know, we're facing, we have so many cultures at work and at play here. The, 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 the number of Latino, African-American, Asian Pacific Islander Americans who are in our legislature and in our congressional delegation is excellent. The number of women, by the way, is not nearly what it needs to be. It's not nearly what it should be. It's not nearly what it could be. And we're hopeful that this year um, will bring about an increase in the number of women who get elected. But um, it's, 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 it's a ben it is a benefit and a burden because it means balance is required. I remember, I remember back in 2000 or 2001 when I was working for the governor and um, state senator who was then the chair of the Black Legislative Caucus, and I had a com were sitting in my office and I said, you know, in looking at we we had, it was it was redistricting time and so I had been seeing all these demographic numbers and I am by no means a demographer. I'm a registered nurse who knows how to save lives. Um, or at least used to know how to. I think I still can. Um, and I said, but I, but I, I looked at him and I said, you know, we really have to figure out what is the long-term strategy for preservation of African-American political power in California? Because gone soon will be the districts that are overwhelmingly African-American that on the natural elect an African-American. I said, my, my guess is to you and something we need to explore is that in much the same way that there's not one district in California that is predominantly LGBT population that could elect, um, that could elect um, a gay person to office. Um, so the secret has been to find high-quality candidates and run them in unusual places. And when you look at the fact that we have tended to, in the last three cycles, maintain the highest numbers of African-American elected officials at the state level that there ever have been, the expansion of that has occurred outside of the traditional inner-city urban core. Um, and, you know, we have, we have many conflicts that start to arise in, in keeping and creating this balance. Um, I think it's essential though, that ultimately every child in the state, you know, look at a picture of the legislature and see somebody that looks like them. Look at somebody from, look at our congressional delegation and see somebody who looks like them. And... Um, I often become uh, extraordinarily emotional when I think about the State of the Union in 1997 when um, President Clinton, for the first time ever had, it had ever been done, told Americans that discrimination against people based on sexual orientation was not an American value. And think about this for a second. For the first time ever, some 13-year-old kids saw their president say that. Yeah. And all of a sudden felt 
that there could be an embrace that they had probably never heard of or felt or imagined could be possible before. Right. And so the same thing is when we elected our first African-American president, as the chairman of the largest local political party in America, in Los Angeles, with one of the largest African-American political populations in our nation, to watch the pride that I saw amongst my community, amongst my members, and it still persists. Yeah, that's that's unprecedented. I mean, and I, I think in many ways it sort of informs how we started off this conversation that California is not about necessarily going it alone, but California is about representing people of all stripes, all colors, all creeds, um, no matter what, and will do so at a faster pace than the rest of the country or the rest of the world is even ready to adjust to. And I think that the, one of the largest things that we'll see, you know, going to the to the polls today are not only candidates that might look like us or have a, a funny name like me or or speak a similar language that, you know, a neighbor does, but also issues, whether it's housing, whether it's homelessness, whether it's representing tenants rights or, you know, talking about incarceration rates, all of these issues sort of ladder up a sense of inclusivity for others. And I I think that that is an, an important message. And I'm curious as someone who now chairs one of the largest local parties in the night. Well, nation, now, now I charge the, now I chair the largest state party in the nation, largest state party. There you go. Um, you know, that sense of inclusivity couldn't be more timely. You know, this week, the Supreme court ruled on a matter, you know, known as the master, the masterpiece case that actually, you know, regardless of the exact reading of the precedent or the outcome, um, and, and however narrowly tailored some legal prognosticators may describe it, it does empower principles of discrimination by stating that the a, a storefront owner, a baker, has the right to reject making a cake or baking a cake um, for a couple that wanted to use that cake in their wedding, and that couple being a same-sex couple. And when we have instances like the transgender ban in the military that we spoke of earlier, or our own vice president alluding to, you know, very backwards, very divisive views on on equality of love, um, or even this type of case outcome, right on the heels of the marriage equality case coming out of the Supreme Court just a few years before, it kind of feels like there's this constant push and pull between a glimmer of progress and a cloud of of a setback. Um, And so as somebody that represents the largest state party, uh, certainly there are issues that are very unique just to the state, regional measures on housing, et cetera, that we we spoke of. But also there are are inclusivity statements and symbols and strides that we'd want to make as a people, as a sort of declarative nation of who we want to be and who we aspire to be in pursuit of a more perfect union. How has your vision of of what these symbols mean and, and what these elections are about changed from being kind of a citizen to being the chair steering the helm of that party? Is that notion of American identity or reclaiming it, especially when you see Supreme Court decisions like this, does it feel extra palpable or has this always been your mission ever since you started out in this space? You know, uh, my my mother, um, my mother had the foresight to raise me um, in a very very diverse world, respectful of people of all kinds of variations in their um, lives and livelihoods, and where they came from and how they got here. I probably had unexpectedly one of the most um, amazing experiences that most people will never gain. And that is that from the time that I was about four, three or four years old until I was about 12 years old, I lived in a building in New York that was three and a half blocks away or four blocks away from where the World's Fair was. And during the 1963-64 World's Fair, 
half of that building was rented out by the United Nations and the participants in the World's Fair. As a result, Haile Selassie's grandson was in my second grade class, as an example. I had a Filipino piano teacher when I was six years old. Most people never had heard of the Philippines. I was exposed to such an extraordinary and broad, diverse set of people that to this day, my choice of neighborhoods to live in reflects that because I think our world is so rich. And, and, and the thing that I love so much about California is this, it's this incredible mosaic. When we talk about the discrimination that was alleged in either direction in the case of the baker, it's a very tough line to think about. I know if I went into a baker and wanted a wedding cake and he said, no, I, uh, you know, no, no disrespect to you because you're gay, but I'm religious and I don't believe in facilitating that. Um, I certainly would be enraged. Um, if on the other hand, I was forced to have somebody come into my house and have them eat shrimp or pork sitting at my kitchen table, I'd be frustrated. And so I, I've struggled with this notion. I don't think any kind of public accommodation should be permitted to discriminate. And fortunately, Justice Kennedy wrote this decision in a very narrow way. And primarily what the decision that he wrote was, was that the commission in Colorado that um, challenged the baker and ruled against the baker um, was actually disrespectful of his religion and that that shouldn't be permissible. The problem with yesterday's ruling is that um, it opens up another flood of lawsuits to try to create exceptions. And each time we create an exception to a non-discrimination rule, whether it's based on sexual orientation, race, gender, ethnicity, whatever it is, we, we, we make the world more unstable. We, we create for ourselves a situation in which people aren't sure that they're equal, that they become the other. Right. Which fuels that us versus them mentality and only sort of further chips away at that progress. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that that only underscores how important today's election is and all of our elections will continue to be to vote in people and policies that not only look like us or stand for us, but that can really try and um, start repairing some of the, the chipping that has occurred against that progress and that inclusivity. Um, we really appreciate your time, Mr. Chairman, and, and I want to be respectful of it. For, for those that have not had a chance to hit the polls yet and are hearing this on, you know, they're driving to work or they're driving home or wherever, um, any advice or guidance at making sure that folks are, um, you know, well-read or equipped to, to show up and, and get ready to go? Any resources that you'd point them to? Go to our website at kadem.org slash endorsements, and you will see the um, you will see the California Democratic Party's recommended uh, candidates. Um, you can actually key in. There's a uh, widget on our website that you can key in your address, and it will give you your personal ballot all the way down. I'm not sure how far down it goes actually in the in the primary, but you can you will get your personal ballot. Um, with recommendations, um, and that's an that is an easy uh, an easy way to uh, find out that information. Perfect. So that is that is one one very good resource. And if anybody should have um, if anybody should have any difficulties when they're at the polls. Um, we have a um, hotline that's available um, that is called the Promote and Protect the Vote. 
uh, hotline. It is staffed by folks who can get you in touch with um, with um, uh, attorneys to help answer questions if anybody is discriminated against. Um, and the phone number of that hotline is 877-321-HELP. That's 877-321-HELP. Excellent. And, and we're staffed by experienced attorneys. Sorry, that's 877-321-VOTE. Oh, 321-VOTE. Okay. Sorry for that. Um, no, no, no. And we'll, we'll make sure to – when. Um, to circulate that as well through American Enough's channel. And if, if, if everyone didn't catch that URL to begin with, cadem.org slash vote has a summary of endorsements, um, an overview of slash, voter protection. Slash endorsements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think on one of your pages um, slash vote, it has endorsements, how yes, to register, yes, where that's to find right. your poll. That's the master page, correct. The master page, yeah. Um, well, well, Mr. Chairman, we know you got a busy day ahead of you, so we're going to let you go. But thank you so much for your time. Good luck, and we appreciate the role that you're playing in making sure that our party can uh, ha- play its role in reshaping America's identity despite sort of any sort of cynicism that we might feel day to day. There's certainly hope in the future of California, and we appreciate you being at the helm of that. And, and you know what? We all need to stand up and make sure our country continues to move forward. And, and and stop this reckless retrograde direction that we're in. So thank you so much for having me on. I will be glad to come back yet again. And um, uh, thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Just like there are there is a wide extended family of of uh, uh, bombing interns and alumnus. Uh, you're you're now an officially a friend of the pod. So we'll we'll happy to have you on at any point, any time. So looking forward to the conversation. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.